Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Michael Ronan, co-founder and president of Branded. Branded acquires and partners with the top performing Amazon sellers. So as you can imagine, we're going to be talking about creating and selling brands on Amazon. Previously, Michael was one of the managing partners at SoftBank Investment Partners' historic Vision Fund 1. We discussed the opportunity within e-commerce while he was still at SoftBank versus Branded, building brands on Amazon versus off Amazon, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Good to see you. Great to see you. Great to see you as always. Um, you worked in Goldman Sachs for a long time, and then you left to join SoftBank. What was your initial attraction to join what what became SoftBank Vision Fund 1, and why did you became attracted to early stage and growth stage startups? Yeah, it was a fascinating um, twist of events. I was a Goldman for 20 years. I grew up in Israel and, and moved to the States to get a, I got a scholarship and then ended up after business school at Goldman. And one of the great, I had a great fortune of doing some really interesting things because I enjoyed doing not just, you know, the bankers typically are either telecom bankers or media bankers or internet bankers. I, I, I kind of straddled everything that was called TMT. Media Telecom Tech, and that got me in a position where I did work with Steve Jobs at Apple when Apple was going into wireless and when Steve wanted to do music deals. And guess who else was kind of in the same vicinity at the time? Well, there was Masayoshi-san, who negotiated at the time with Steve to get the exclusivity for the iPhone when the iPhone was launched in Japan. That was what launched Masa's uh, amazing telecom run in Japan when he took over Vodafone. And uh, both Masa and and Steve were enamored with the music business as kind of a driver for media growth and for internet growth. So long and the short of it, in 2017, it was Masa that just uh, was negotiating a deal to put together the biggest fund in the world. And I went to see him in Japan and talked to him about what he could do with it. And um, uh, he said, instead of just giving me the advice or telling me what to do, why don't you come and do it? So that was really, if I had to summarize the reason, <laughs> that was the reason. And I look, I, I admired Masa and his vision and his uh, capabilities and his risk taking. And it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to try and build something pretty amazing. There was obviously a lot of good stuff that happened, a lot of difficult things that, that happened. But it was an amazing, amazing journey, which I, uh, I will never forget. Yeah. And I mean, also just, it was pretty revolutionary, right? It was the largest, no one had ever seen a venture capital fund like of that size by like several hundred billion. I mean, it was unbelievable. And so uh, I'm sure just being part of that, that's just um, really, really just like an incredible um, experience. Mike, it was, you know, so it was a hundred billion, which at the time was literally almost the aggregate of, of most other funds. I think since then, there were quite a few other funds that grew to be that size. And I think, as you said, it was unprecedented. And so there was real questions as to what would be the right strategy. I, I think that it has proven and I've talked to quite a few other investors since then, there's clearly a place for private markets and sophisticated private investors to help companies bridge venture into public markets so to be in between and help uh, those companies grow still as private companies. You can argue exactly how to do that. And maybe sometimes it was too much capital, 
But by and large, you know, the likes of Tiger, Kotu, and quite a few others have not proven that there's a lot of room for that. And obviously a bunch of others now have done since. So I think it was an amazing uh, kind of bold move. And I think it's going to be, you know, it's, it's it, between SoftBank itself and a few others is going to be continued opportunity in that, in that area. No, totally. I mean, SoftBank definitely with uh, Vision Fund 1 was definitely ahead of the curve in terms of what we've been seeing now over the past couple of years. With all this being said, you know, you're at SoftBank, you're part of the largest venture capital fund um, that we'd ever seen at that time. Why did you end up leaving and what eventually became branded? To be honest, I did not take myself a big break between, you know, almost 20 years at Goldman and three years of helping build the, the Vision Fund in the U.S. So the level of intensity was was quite quite big. It was right going into COVID and I had family overseas that I needed to spend time with. And I think just the weight of all of it um, and some of the needs that I had to kind of take care of a family and the likes just came together and told me that I needed to take a break. You know, I didn't know at the time. Obviously, none of us knew exactly how, how long COVID will be, but that was the right thing for me to do. And, and you know, the, the fund was launched and I've invested $5 billion, uh, as part of the team that, that funded and those investments were doing well. So... I felt like I've done what I needed to do to build and and launch, but I needed to take the break. What I thought I'm going to do is just raise a fund myself and do something a bit less ambitious than the Vision Fund, but do it more myself as an entrepreneur. And what happened actually as I was beginning to do some of my own investing was I came across the opportunity to do Branded, to work with Branded and to actually help build the company. It was initiated by a couple of people that I knew very well. Ben Kaminsky, who was an investor at a fund called Target Global in Europe. And we connected with Pierre, my partner, who's now running Branded with me out of Paris. And what I thought would be just an investment and a board position, which I was kind of used to, very quickly became an opportunity to actually build a company, which I've never done before. So I helped build the Vision Fund. I recruited 15, 20 people and to my team and I helped recruit them, but it wasn't really building a company. It was in the investment area, which was was kind of more natural to me. This is an operating company and a scale-up, and I've only done that as a board member and investor, but not as, as a, you know, th- th- this is the difference between saying something and actually doing it. <laughs> so you say it on the board and then somebody else does the work. Maybe this is kind of the opportunity to actually to actually do it. And that was, and it's in the sweet spot of my skill set. So Branded is a growth equity company. It's absorbing small e-commerce companies and helping them grow. There's an element of investment. There's an element of scale-up. So a lot of things that I've had quite a lot of experience with. So I, you know, it's in, in the days of COVID where everybody was distributed anyways, I found it really a unique opportunity to partner with people in Singapore, Europe, um, Middle East, and and just build a company from scratch. And I've not looked back, you know, it's, it's been amazing. That's phenomenal. I mean, what was that decision like, though, going from you just becoming like an LP, not an active investor, just invested in branded, to you actually, you know, becoming a co-founder, you actually in much more of like an operating role. Um, what was your initial attraction by the Amazon ecosystem? Maybe that, Maybe you just couldn't escape that you wanted to be part of branded in a much more hands-on way. So I think there was a couple of things there. Number one, at SoftBank, one of my key thesis was that I talked to Masa about was to deploy very large scale capital in technology, you need very big problems that are capital intensive. So the traditional, as we talked about, traditional venture has been more modest in terms of capital. And to me, one of the biggest opportunities was helping organize 
the e-commerce ecosystem that is not Amazon. So obviously Amazon itself created not just great businesses, but a great business model where they grow a business internally for their own use and then leverage third parties to help fund it to further scale. So they grew the cloud business first just so they can service consumers around the world and ultimately rented that cloud business and what became AWS and an amazing business uh, for themselves. They've done the same thing with the marketplace. They, it was first theirs, first, you know, a first party marketplace where they're the seller and then they opened up to third parties and built an amazing business. Everybody else and around that, they built 100 plus million households on Prime. So they had customers coming to them every day, every minute. And they built a massive infrastructure of warehouses, planes, trains, everything that connects them, robots, and the, everything that allows you to click buy now and get it within 24 hours uh, to your doorstep. Everybody else that is not Amazon, and that includes some very, very big names, needed to respond. And I thought that if there's one big group that is international, has e-commerce roots and Alibaba and the likes that can actually help organize that with capital and, and expertise with SoftBank. So I invested in everything from autonomous delivery to freight forwarding. So Flexport, companies that help Manuro, companies that help delivery and, and parking, which was uh, turned into um, kind of last mile mobility hubs in Reef. And GoPuff, which is an, uh, an amazing new business that does very quick delivery. So, so I invested on all those themes. And then coming out of SoftBank, taking the break and looking at what's out there, it became clear that I have an opportunity to invest and to be part of the Amazon ecosystem by building Branded into a company that can take the small businesses that grew up on the back of Amazon's infrastructure and help them get to the next level and so that was quite a natural transition. And again, it was leveraging both the knowledge that I gained at, at SoftBank, but also just the skill set of acquisition and investment and scale up that I've developed since. Amazon has decades ahead of it of successful strength in e-commerce. They, they, what they've built has decades of, of strength ahead of it. It's just talking to Microsoft 30 or 40 years ago as PCs started to you know, flourish and they were de facto the operating system. Of course, there was Apple, there was other operating systems, ultimately there was mobile, but there were decades of, of value created in that ecosystem. And I think, I think Amazon has the same. So helping organize e-commerce that is not inside Amazon does not take away from their continued growth. It was just helping creating a balance, right? And obviously there's marketplaces outside the US like Alibaba and, and many, many others uh, where that has happened. But yes, I think the, and this is where I, you know, the mission of Branded is interesting and compelling, not just to me, but to many of the younger uh, people that we, we attract, both as sellers that come to us to partner with us when they sell us their business, but also employees. What resonates with them is Amazon empowered them to become business people, to actually, you know, if you were 25 or 30 years old, 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't really get to be a business owner online. It was the barriers to entry was so high. So obviously Shopify helped on direct-to-consumer and there's still an amazing platform to do that. And there's still a lot of work to do there. But Amazon, by opening up their marketplace and the fulfillment by Amazon platform, suddenly enabled anyone, and talk about COVID, anyone anywhere from any home and any location, if they're commercial, they're smart, if they're able to work really hard and, and find the right business to become a business owner, a small business owner online. 
And that just didn't exist before. You could not be, you either were in a venture business of starting a company and hoping to get funded and hit it big, or you would fail 99 times out of 100. The idea of having a small business online that can be profitable, 20, 25%, 30% profit margins didn't exist. And so now the question is, how do you help? And this goes back to the mission. The mission that we have is the ones who succeeded from zero to one already did it without us and branded. They just leveraged Amazon and are very good at what they've done. How do we help them take the one to 10 and help them, in many cases, be our partners in doing that? So come to our platform, work with branded, and try and find the niches, the places where their expertise plus our capabilities and experiences can actually take a brand that already got off the ground to a much, much bigger uh, opportunity. And that empowering small business owners that way online and just making them, creating wealth for them that get, does well for them and the economy and creating an opportunity for them to flourish and and grow their business and doing that in a partnership type of model is quite unique. How do you think about then differentiation amongst other funds? Because of course, you're not the only ones that are buying predominantly Amazon businesses and you know having like a portfolio of, of you know strong performing Amazon businesses. How do you think about players in the market and maybe differentiation? Why Amazon merchant, um, Amazon seller might be more interested in branded versus like one of the other players? This is a big and growing ocean with lots of fish and lots of opportunities to create fishing strategies and great kind of uh, strategies around that. And there's there's plenty of an opportunity in what is still, e-commerce is still underpenetrated. It, it had a big, big boost in, in the COVID pandemic that's coming down, but long-term, we're all going to continue and migrate our shopping experiences. It's not just because we or the younger generation, it's because younger generations are replacing older generations and that trend continues to to evolve. So this is not at the expense of of others. This is just as what makes us tick. So what makes the branded team tick and makes it quite different is that rather than, I, I think there is clearly a case of just doing the basics to help small brands get better and bigger. Basics are pretty complex and we're not the only ones who are doing that, but they include better inventory management, better listings, better marketing, better uh, performance marketing and what we would call growth hacking, the ability to um, scale also into other marketplaces and other regions. Clearly, we're doing that. We have to do that. And, prov- um, and we do that in partnership many times with the entrepreneurs. What differentiates us is we also are building quite a few of these products and sets of products and early brands into branded groups uh, and branded products. By that, I mean... We're leaning into categories. First of all, you need to be in the right categories. If you're selling generic plastic tools or or some household products, there's no need for a brand. Amazon solved that by giving ratings and customer reviews, and the consumers choose them based on functionality and reviews. But if you're choosing, you know, a if you're if you've embarked on a diet and you're trying to find the right nutrients to support you on that diet, or if you're in, you know, you have a, a, a beauty regimen and you're looking to uh, invest in yourself in that, those will be categories where people look for social affirmation for brands, for emerging brands. Uh, they listen to influencers, they listen to their friends, they look for a brand. Even obviously, they look for the traditional brands in many cases. But as we talk about new consumers getting online. A lot of it is new new opportunities. And those are the categories where we've invested deeply in. And in those, if you, and this goes back to our value proposition, our value proposition to the entrepreneurs is 
you know, join us. In many cases, we actually will have you join the platform. So you will be either an employee or advisor to branded, and you can continue and build your brand. You've already done the hard work of going from zero to one by yourself. Continue to do that with us. We'll surround you with a lot of the support systems and infrastructure and a team and the systems and the uh, disciplines that will allow you to grow and take you overseas, expand your product portfolio, invest in new products, etc. And you will have a residual value in your own brand. We'll pay you again, ultimately, when you leave, uh, based on the growth and the equity that we've created in doing so. So it's a little bit of the best of both worlds for the ones who are passionate about the brands. If all you're interested in is just selling and moving on and doing something else in life and you don't see a lot of upside in your own brand or you don't see what we see, then either we'll buy it anyways and just not have you be part of our, our group, but most likely we we'll probably won't be the right buyers in many cases because the value creation is, isn't there. Being in the sectors that are branded, creating three-year plans to brand and grow and bringing the entrepreneurs with us for that journey in many cases is quite, quite differentiating. So the ideal partnership for you is you buy the company and the entrepreneur stays on board as a CEO or, or head of company and obviously utilizing your team, your expertise, maybe some cost savings in inventory management and what have you, but the entrepreneur actually stays on to kind of see through the journey. Is that right? Yeah, many cases that's the case. We have over a dozen, you know, we have quite a few that have joined us just in the past year. It's a high bar because it needs to work for both sides. So it's not, we're not just buying every, we never boasted, uh, that was never our thing to say, oh, wow, we're buying a company every day or every week or every two days or whatnot. That's not the way we measure ourselves. It's really about, so it's less about throughput of just acquiring products. You know, we would occasionally buy, you know, there's money to be made and value to create uh, by buying, you know, less branded things, if you will, if you want to call it that way. But the core value over time, Look, this is true in general in consumer packaged goods. You can't, you know, if P&G was selling exactly the same products that they were selling 10 years ago, it would be out of business. you got, you know, consumer tastes change. You need to refresh. Um, you need to expand. You need to move to where the, the market is going. So that is the value proposition for us with, with entrepreneurs that join us to help them do that. So what, what categories do you deem as attractive to, if you maybe have like large macro categories that you're quite interested in, do you invest in, in maybe multiple brands within maybe in one category? So the, the, the answer to the second question is yes, because the niche, you know, the whole idea is, or part of the thesis is that in a fragmented world where all of us are getting a different news feed and a different social feed, there's room for multiple brands that are brands that people will look for by name and associate a certain value to it. But it's not just about the Super Bowl ad and, and you know, the, the primetime ad, but it's about brands that are challenger brands that are carving their niches inside the marketplace, targeting a demographic, targeting a certain value proposition to, you know, we should have uh, quite a few of them in the, in the niche. Sometimes they'll have some overlap in, that is direct and sometimes they'll be complementary. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, we, we own a, a brand called Puracy which has a nice presence on Amazon and outside Amazon and physical distribution and is in Target stores and elsewhere. But we recently invested in a brand and, and its value proposition, it's very much a modern forward-thinking brand focused on uh, natural products for um, personal care and cleaning, et cetera. 
we didn't have a laundry detergent in that category, right? So we had, uh, it just didn't exist. Now we can, we have the people that know how the expertise, the supply chain to obviously expand and create a Puracy uh, product in that area. But we just recently bought another brand called Rock and Green that does just that. It has essentially the same value proposition to consumers, but it's just limited into the, the laundry and laundry detergent area. Now we have two brands, you know, and, and Rock and Green can be purposed also as a Puracy product, but we can still sell as a niche Rock and Green. So there is ability to create, if you're running yourself in categories and you're creating a strategic portfolio of products, you can actually create real synergies, even if there's this overlap, because you can repurpose and change the messaging per the demographic. So that, you know, those categories, consumables, um, beauty and personal care, health, nutrition, um, those are categories where people are passionate, there's enthusiastic kind of followership on social. We can build also legs in direct-to-consumer over time because it's easier to target these audiences and they're, cl- and they're replenishable people. By definition, if you do a good job and you're selling people something they like, they'll reorder, they'll subscribe. So we like those categories a lot. We also like um, categories where there's other differentiation. So we've, we've, we own a couple of brands that have either patents or design protection on, on their IP. And so we can, you know, they cannot be copied without repercussion. You know, if somebody is just copycatting us, we can talk to Amazon and take them down. And we have shelf space for them because they're so unique and because people actually, uh, you know, one brand called Ototo, which is kind of a uniquely designed novelty home goods, kitchen and the likes. There's nothing that, that looks like it. And people who want that will get that and will look, they will go online and find it and then either order it on Amazon or direct or find it in retail. Uh, and anybody who's copying uh, the product copycat, you know, will have some, rep, you know, ability to, uh, to, to take down. So those, those are the, like, the ones that we, we like the most. Is the goal ultimately to buy and hold all the companies that you own, or are you also looking to for exits as well, or or even like exit um, opportunities for some of the brands that you're building? So we're we're not a fund. We're an operating company. We have a couple hundred people that are day to day running. We're not minority investors. We're not financial. You know, I have financial training, but we're we're the company is an operating company that is very much looks like a very nimble consumer packaged goods online uh, company. Our goal is to, you know, to invest smartly, acquire, and in some many cases partner with entrepreneurs, as we said, and create a great portfolio of brands in some key categories that can grow and create value, obviously, for, for the company, for, you know, some of the entrepreneurs that joined us and, and for investors. We're not planning to, you know, sell pieces of it or, or do anything of that sort. But again, if you're managing by category, if you have life cycle of brands and products, obviously at any point in time, again, you see it in the consumer packaged goods kind of traditional businesses, you can trade, you can say, hey, I'm, I need a growth brand here, I will sell you my other asset and you can sell me your, you know, uh, the one that, that we covet. So those, those opportunities obviously could evolve over time very naturally as we do this. And the long-term value creation will be when, you know, obviously we can do what companies do. We can decide to at some point list and become a public company. Uh, you know, we can create value in many different ways. But if what we do at the end of the day is take businesses 
I want to emphasize this is not about, you know, there's, there's cost efficiencies in creating things at scale, but a lot of those cost efficiencies, certainly on the Amazon marketplace, have been created by Amazon, and they're ripping the rewards of that. And so whether we're 50 million of branded and 500 million of branded or a billion dollars of revenues of branded, we already are benefiting from that about the same way as anyone else who's working with Amazon. We're all benefiting from their scale. The value we create won't be from necessarily, there'll be value created from efficiencies, but the real value creation is from growth and investment in creativity and product generation and new product launches and expansion of, of the footprint. Um, and that is the mindset. Everybody at Branded is a builder grower of businesses rather than a efficient, uh, you know, the, 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 we want to do it as efficiently as possible, but boy, the businesses we are buying are very lean already. You know, it's not, we're not seeing a lot of small businesses with private jets and three limousines, you know, driving the entrepreneur back and forth from there. These are lean businesses that need our help to grow. Uh, so our, our game is, is a growth game. Since like the idea is to scale the brand initially on Amazon, how do you think about Amazon as a partner? Because obviously they have their own private label. They've been known or there's been talks and there are stories out there about how Amazon, you know, copies the best products and what have you, especially when you think about your differentiated product and your products that are patented. How do you think of Amazon as a partner when they're also producing their own brands as well? I view them exactly as as you've described. They're a great partner in the sense that they're letting us and many others leverage their capabilities, what they're good at, um, and they're doing it um, across the board and allowing us to do that. And, and I accept them to also do, um, this all started from them building the infrastructure for themselves. And so I expect them to continue to do that as well. And, uh, you know, if there's one thing that we're not lacking, it's competition. And whether it's competition from Amazon or from other brands, the amazing thing that as a consumer, and we all feel this, we get is an unbelievably competitive marketplace that yields consumers great value, right? And whether it's an Amazon brand that competes with us or it's another aggregator or it's just an up and coming brand from somewhere and you know, when I, we, we don't lack competition anywhere we play. It's a hyper competitive. And so I, I think that goes back to the reason that we're constructing the business the way we do, what helps you know, the reason somebody invented brands was to begin to differentiate, right? Because there's subtle ways to connect with consumers on a subconscious level almost with a name and a vision and a certain set of values and a certain set of, of, of things you deliver to them that allows consumers ultimately to find you if they like you not by yet again searching for the best product at the you know but by finding you by name so if we do that and we do that well enough across enough of our brands then whether it's amazon competing with us or it's other 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 brands you know by and large we'll continue to get enough of our more than our fair share of consumers coming to us without us needing to constantly bid for their attention and that's the whole point of uh, of our strategy do you ever have inclinations of buying businesses that are predominantly sold, predominantly selling through their own channels, like Shopify or a better non-Amazon? We've made a couple of those investments, especially when we see the opportunity to, again, create some value with some of our other brands. Um, there's clearly an opportunity that is emerging also in that area. You know, the fact that you know, Amazon is just a template 
and a place where it's very clear and now there's a market, there's a sophisticated market of buyers and sellers and it's very clear, you know, the, the, you know, the opportunity is quite visible. Shopify is organizing essentially, and obviously there's others as well, but by far kind of the scale play right now off of Amazon and direct to consumers to do that on the back of the Shopify platform. Again, there's others that are much smaller as well. And I think there is a, you know, at the end of the day, there's obviously a place where you can bring similar values in that ecosystem as well. The big difference at a very, the macro level is on Amazon, what Amazon does is it brings you the customers with an intention to buy the types of products you're buying. So now it's really up to you as a brand to stand out and find them and obviously, you know, get, get their attention. And, but they already have an intention to buy. Right? They, they came into Amazon because they wanted to buy something that hopefully is part of what your portfolio is. In the case of direct-to-consumer, the big issue is always going to be privacy versus effectiveness. And we're obviously in the middle of that pendulum swinging back and forth in the U.S. Apple has increased privacy uh, constraints on the likes of Instagram and Meta and whatnot because people, you know, light up, myself included, light up, we light up our iPhones before we have any intention to buy anything and we go into Instagram not necessarily wanting to buy. And so, you know, the, the somebody needs to find us while we're doing other things, surfing the web or to and, and direct our intention to buy. And that requires getting through some privacy things because otherwise, you know, there's no intention to buy. And so the economics as a result of that are very different. If you're just trying to find the people that already are want to buy and you just need to direct them your way, you have to make a certain investment in marketing and then get your margin after that through Amazon. If you're actually just trying to find the traffic to bring into you, to convert into an intention to buy, to convert ultimately into a purchase with you, that's a completely different funnel. It's a completely different skill set. The economics are not completely settled because of all the backs and the way the world is changing. It's harder to target now on iOS than it was six months ago or a year ago. So I think we're much more cautious over time. If you have great products, you find your customers online, whether through Amazon or otherwise, you'll be able to build legs that are in both places and, and manage them correctly. But we're in the very early stages of, of both ecosystems evolving that way. Yeah, that's a really good, and that's something that I thought about initially about, I mean, certainly like the intent to buy and you know that, that power of the search bar in Amazon and having this kind of centralized system to find what you want to buy, extremely powerful, extremely powerful for customers. I think it's going to go both ways. So I think Amazon is already doing this. You know, people don't want to just go to Amazon. I do believe Amazon has such so much power to be able to do this. They, you want the Amazon experience to be more fun and not just utility. Definitely. Well, right now we go into Amazon because we know if we really need something, we'll find it super fast, efficiently, and we trust the system to deliver it to us. But people buy, you know, again, depending on generation and, and whatnot, um, people want to socially engage in commerce as well online, which they do through other platforms. Amazon needs to go in that direction and they're going, right? Live selling, you know, influencer marketing. They're going into, and obviously they're opening up brand pages for people like us and bigger brands. So I think you'll see both sides. I think you'll see the Shopify side offer at scale logistics and, and the support of what is, you know, will become more and more like a marketplace. So the scale economies of aggregating the, the small stores into a aggregated platform. And I think you'll see Amazon moving more into allowing brands to become brands and to socially engage with consumers. So at the end, whether that happens over five years or 10 years and 
how fast and how efficient, how I don't know. But I know that if we have great products that have a brand connecting them and we know how to find generally, our, you know, we'll be fine. You know, we'll get to them this way, the other way, we'll get to them in shopping malls or Target stores, et cetera. That, that's, the, that's the mission. No, I mean, that's a really good point. And of course, Amazon's thinking about new ways in order to make that experience a lot more fun and exciting. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Alibaba and Taobao and of how Taobao introduced live streaming onto Taobao. And that took off. And they were very, very central, direct with being, that being part of one of their core strategies, which live streaming is a very fun way to engage with content. And of course, that now live streaming in China is a multi-billion dollar um, industry. We haven't seen that yet over here because we haven't seen Amazon or one of the main commerce players to actually adopt live streaming. And so I think it's interesting, though, what you say about how what Amazon's thinking about probably about trying to make that experience a lot more fun and engaging and, and actually and having the like branded um, opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting because it's also consumer. We see this already. Consumer behavior is different from culture to culture. It's clearly, you know, live selling in Southeast Asia and Asia. So my partners at Branded, who run the company with me, are largely have grown in, in Lazada in Southeast Asia, building the marketplace there ultimately selling to Alibaba. So they, they, they have seen this day one, day in, day out. We haven't seen the same strength. You know, Amazon actually is launching, uh, has launched product, um, live selling. It's live. You can see it on Amazon, but it's very, as you said, it's very small. And I'm curious about it. If you think about it actually more holistically, the U.S. has QVC, right? The, the old kind of 24-7 cable TV model where that is live selling, right? And amazing businesses that there were growth businesses and threw off a ton of cash flow and are still, by the way, very large, billions and billions of dollars of, of sales and profits. That generation is shrinking over overall, right? That's not a long-term growth area. And I'm curious to see how the U.S. consumers, clearly the U.S. consumers, the Gen X, Y, and Z, you know, the, gen, the, the next generations of consumers are morphing to social, but they haven't morphed yet into live as much as you'd expect based on what you see in Asia. But I think it's it's also early, and it may be that the business models have not really crystallized uh, enough yet. I kind of think the reason why is because if you look at how it happened in China, it was actually the major players that, that introduced it. It was Alibaba and, and Taobao, and they made it very much part of their strategy. And so when you just have that adoption, since everybody buys um, on Taobao, then I think it's a much more easier to adopt as a user. I think that what we're missing in the States, personally, I don't know if it's a change, quite like a change of if consumers don't want it here. Like I actually do think that there is a demand for it, but you haven't seen like an Amazon. I know that you said that you do some live streaming, but it's not like direct center on the Amazon page for live streaming. And so I'd be curious if that happened, what would then be the response? Because I think that right now, which is very nascent because it's really just startups that are doing it. It's not really like the actual big tech companies. And that's how it evolved in Asia. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. I think you're right. I think it'll be, it could be that this this kind of, this ends up being a bigger part of, of the way Facebook, yeah. uh, TikTok and others kind of go into e-commerce with the helps of the, the likes of Shopify Clearly, shopping, you know, when done right, should be very much a, a fun, many times social experience. People like to self-validate. And this is why, I guess, I th again, I think it's early days. If you think about the things that the kind of the scale players like us are doing, they're still relatively simple. We just help grow by launching new products. And there's still so much to do. 
right, in converting some of this model to, to these new things. No, for sure. I completely agree. And I mean, going back before I let us on this tangent, what you do lose from not focusing on maybe owning like a Shopify business versus Amazon business is because in a Shopify business, you do actually own, or a DTC business, you do own that customer, right? You have their email addresses, you're able to do all the uh, email marketing. You're not able to do that um, on Amazon. So that is like a subtle trade-off there, but what the advantage of, of Amazon, of course, is you have the search bar. You're, you have that customer intent, which is, words can't even describe how powerful that is. But that, Mike, doesn't mean that we don't see a lot of customers in our better brands come back and just go into the search bar and enter the name of our brand. And if we have to pay a fee for every time we bid on a search name that is not our name, if, if we have just to pay for our brand name, that's nothing. We have to pay for a very sought-after search word. That's expensive. So the value, even on the marketplace, and even if we don't know the name or the details of that customer because they're invisible to us, they're Amazon's customer, the fact that they look for us on a repeat basis to get our products because they like them, they just happen to like the fulfillment platform of Amazon, and, and so they enjoy buying on Amazon, is still a very good moat and ultimately allows us to bifurcate to create offerings that are off of Amazon in some cases. So it creates, it creates, so I don't think it's, it's a black and white, you know, it's a world of anonymity and it's a world of knowing everyone. There's a, there's a bit of a continuum in between. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that has inspired you professionally? Oh, wow. That's, that's a tough question. There's many of them. I would say that when I was very young, growing up as a kid in Israel in the 1970s and 80s, I read a book by Lee Iacocca. And for the life of me, he was the CEO of Chrysler, turned around Chrysler uh, in the 70s, 80s. And he wrote the book, which name escapes me, but it's the story of his life. It's his biography of how he grew to prominence at Ford by launching the Mustang and ultimately running and then moving to um, to Chrysler. And the inspiration for me as, as somebody in my teens at the time was really all about the American dream because he talked about this as an Italian immigrant and um, a guy who grew up, you know, as, as an immigrant uh, from nothing. And that was one of the things that cemented my desire to actually make the move and immigrate to the U.S. many years ago. So if I had to point... That, that's certainly one. The other one I would remember that I read was Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive, Harvey McKay. Completely random book. I read it again at about the same age, but it was basically all about, you know, marketing, networking, building a company, working with supply. It was just basic business stuff that as a teen in a very kind of faraway overseas country was kind of all new to me. And all these things, kind of the, the level of business acumen that I saw in the U.S. and the opportunity was quite unique. So that's old stuff that changed me 20, 30 years ago. In the recent years, I consume a lot. It's hard for me. I, I just recently finished the Michael Dell recent book. And, and I would say there is quite a lot of inspiration there in terms of, you know, the guy has obviously built an amazing company. And the kind of the most recent book, the one I just finished, is all about all the things that he went through in defending his company already as a public company from Icon and then through going through all the kind of the turmoil, basically buying the company back himself from the public and then and then selling it again to the public. And I think the kind of the inspiration there, if I had to summarize it, is, you know, a person has had massive success and could have retired many years ago and done other things and has persevered 
with great values and with the biggest kind of value of them all in terms of entrepreneurship, which is just relentless, just never giving up. Even when people literally wrote off Dell as something is just going to go out of business 10, 15 years ago. So anyways, it's just one random that jumps to my head as a great, great inspiration. But I read, I read a lot of them. No, that's great. I really appreciate you sharing those three. And I don't think we've actually had anyone mention any of those. So Michael, very original, very original. Thank you. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I would say probably just to build on what I just said about the Dell biography. If I had to summarize, there's so many things that you need to do to be successful, right? You need to to be good at many different things. Maybe the two things to say is, number one, everybody will tell you what you're not good at. If you look for that, you'll, you'll hear, you know, people will tell you and you should listen to that. But it's very likely that whatever are your weaknesses, quote unquote, are never going to become strengths. What you should do is try and do better with them, but really lean into actually those things that are unique to you and make you different. Sometimes they can be perceived as weaknesses, but many times they'll be just strengths of yours. Those will be the things rather than focusing on trying to improve, which is a very kind of corporate thing that we try to do with just focus on your strengths and just lean into the strength, double down on those. And then as an entrepreneur, never give up, never, ever give up. The difference many, many times between massive success, I had dinner last night with one entrepreneur that told me the same thing. We've seen this now many times. The difference, every company had a near-death experience multiple times. Think about Apple, Amazon, just any company you want to pick up. There's never going to be a story where it all, the Tesla was, everybody was predicting Tesla's out of business. They had no funding. They had like one quarter left of funding or not. And the difference almost all the time is the tenacity. It is inviting to give up, to say, just white flag. And it's just game over. And it's just not game over. And you just need to just continue to fight. And if you continue to fight and lean into your strengths, it's not always, but in in the preponderance of cases, you'll be able to come out much, much stronger than what seems to be the case in any of of those crisis moments. Yeah, I mean, those are all really good points. Michael, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great to see you and uh, let's keep in touch. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Michael. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone.